0: Okay, so we are now live. Welcome everyone to Drisha's spring program and the first class of this session on the Halachi process, a brief history. We value everyone's active participation and we encourage you to share your videos uh, if you're able to. You can also ask questions by unmuting yourself or by putting them in the chat here on Zoom or as a comment on Facebook. I also uh, shared the source sheet on Zoom and I will do so again. this class sketches the, hist- the historical tra- trajectory of the primary halakhic texts and the methods and processes they followed. What texts shaped how the law developed? Why did those texts become binding or at least central? As we move into the n- new eras, how much of an active role do the earlier texts still play? Can the text of the Bible still be brought to bear directly on halakhic decisions? or can it only be accessed through the lens of the later canons of interpretation? As so much of the halacha was developed in particular communities and geographic regions, how has globalization affected the models of authority? What does this shift mean for both law and costume in the modern world? We will approach these questions in attempting to understand both how we reach the modern moment and what this means going forward. It is my pleasure to introduce Rabbi Jonathan Ziering. Rabbi Ziering is a Ram and the Educational Coordinator at Yeshivat Migdal HaTorah. Rabbi Ziering received semicha from the Rabbi Isaac El Theological Seminary at Yeshiva University. He also received an MA in Jewish Philosophy from Bernard Revel Graduate School and a BA from the Honors Program at the Yeshiva College of Yeshiva University. Rabbi Ziering studied at Yeshiva Tahr and continued his learning there as a member of the Kolel Gavo'a. He was also a fellow at the Tikva Fund and Center for Modern Torah Leaderships, Sa- Summer Bet Midrash. Rabbi Ziering has previously served as Gan Rosh Kolel of the Yeshiva University, Torah Mitzion Beit Midrash Zichon Dov and as the rabbinic assistant of Beit in Toronto. He has taught in many contexts in the US, Canada, and Israel, focusing particularly on the halachic process. With that, I'll turn this to Rabbi Ziering.
1: Uh, thank you so much. Uh, so I'm really excited to, uh, to learn with everyone. When, uh, when Rabbi Zuckier reached out to me, um, to see if I'd be interested in teaching, I was really excited. This has been, um, this is really my, my my hobby, is to teach about the halachic process. Uh, Rabbi Zuckier and I were chavrutot uh, for uh, at least five years um so um it was uh i was i was really glad for him to to reach out and i'm really excited to teach my first uh course here at uh, adresia um with all the limitations of uh, covid it's opened up the ability for me to uh to learn with new people and i'm really excited to to meet everyone um if you're not opposed if you have a question it's definitely easier for me if you unmute yourself so i don't have to look at the chat i will try to look at the chat Periodically, but it is—it uh, feels more uh, participatory, and it's just easier for me if you just uh, unmute yourselves and shout out like you would in uh, in person. Um, okay, with that, let's uh, let's get started. So, um, our goal for the next uh, six weeks is to uh, is to is to explore the uh, the halachic process um, both uh, historically and also as we're going through the history to understand the um the pr- the process the methodology that were used by the the authorities throughout the generations uh to formulate that thing that we know as halakha as jewish law um so our goal for the first class is going to be to to try to sketch this history as much as we uh can do in uh in an hour which i know is a uh um a tall task but we'll uh, we'll see what we can uh, we can do so I'll start by, uh, by sharing the screen here. Um, okay, so for the first source, this is not really a source, but um, this was um, the, this picture here is actually the picture of a uh, very, very large um, framed picture that uh, is one of the few things that my, my wife insisted that she take from her uh, parents' house when we got married, um, called the Sea of Halacha, which is um, a good way to start um, it's a, uh, an attempt to, in a, in a single picture, imagine how we got from the Torah, how we got from the word of God, all the way to, uh, to halakha as we know it, uh, today. Um, obviously it stuffs a lot into a picture, but I just want to look at it for a minute because I think it's, it's helpful to understand what exactly we're doing and how complicated, um, it can be. We'll try to simplify it as much as, as possible. And I do think that this picture helps us at least uh, ground ourselves. Um, so we after we have, you know, the, the Torah really starts as, uh, not surprisingly, with this week's Parsha, with God giving us the Torah at Harsinai, which is this mountain um, over here. Um, and then as the Mishnah in Pirkei Avot tells us, the tradition was then passed, both the written tradition and the oral tradition that accompanied it was, um, was passed down through the generations, from Moshe to his student to Yoshua to Joshua, and from him to the sages that pro- followed him and the prophets and the judges and etc, until it got to the Ancha Knesset Hagdullah to this body, um, which included both the later prophets. Um, in the beginning of the the rabbis, which we call the Anshe Knesset uh, Hagdullah, the Men of the Great Assembly, um, and then the early uh, sages, the early early leading sages were known as the Zugot, the Pairs, the head of the the two heads of the Beit Din. Um, and as we go through that period, so for those of you who've studied Pirkei Avot. We meet the uh, these early these early groups, um, and then we get to the uh, the Tannaitic period, um, in about the second century. But we'll we'll get more into this, um, which is the period in which the Mishnah is written, uh, as well as some less known contemporaneous texts like the Tosefta, which are Tannaitic material they don't make it in to the uh, to the Mishnah, uh, as well as um, Midrash Halacha, which is uh, exegesis of the Psukim analysis of the Psukim leading to halachic results, um, and then after you get to the Mishnah, following this uh, this image here. So then, um, first you get the um, is the Eretz Yisrael Amora'im, the Amora'im who live in uh, in Israel who write the what becomes known as the Talmud Yerushalmi. Um, about a century later, you get what is now just known as the Gemara or the Talmud, the Talmud Bavli, with the Babylonian Amoraim, um, and then it continues. You get the period of the of the Saburayim, who we'll talk about. Who are this intermediate um, period between the uh, the Amoraim of the Gemara and the Gaonim, who are the heirs to the Yeshivot of uh, of the Gemara, um, and then around the year 1000, so we start defining people, and we'll talk about what these terms might mean and why we have these uh, divisions, uh, the Rishonim, literally just the early scholars, um, which the exact cutoff between them and the next period, which is the Akronim, the later scholars, let's say sometime around the time of the expulsion from Spain, so sometime around the turn of the 16th century, um, and uh, and that's Basically, what takes us, right, Shulchan Aruch is written around that period, the mid-16th century. Um, and then, again, the periods are not exactly clear, but they take us basically to the modern uh, period, right? That is, in, in a snapshot, is this uh, this ocean here that you get, the Sea of, uh, of Halakha. What I want to try to do is understand it um, in the most basic and uh, overarching terms to understand what exactly is this thing we call halacha. how did we get where we are? Um, and try to understand how it works, so we that we know where we're going. That that's our goal for the for the next few weeks. Okay, to so to start the this discussion, I start with a passage in uh, in the Rambam in Maimonides. So the Rambam, um, the probably greatest of the codifiers, um, lives most of his life in Egypt after his family is is uh, chased out of of Spain by the Almohads. Um, born in 1140, dies 1204, 1205. So in Hilchot Talmud Torah, in the laws of Talmud Torah, the Rambam asks, what is this thing we call Talmud? Anyone who's ever studied Torah has at least heard of the Talmud. And when we think of the Talmud, we think of, um, or we think of Gemara, we think of the Babylonian Talmud, we think of Dafyomi, we think of whatever we think of. But the Rambam asks formally, what exactly is Gemara? What is Talmud? What exactly does this entail? So the Rambam tells us as follows. Um, I'll read the English. I've included English for almost all, all, the, all the sources. Um, it could be on this sheet for everything, but almost all of them. Um, but the Rambam writes, one is obligated to divide his time of study by three. One third for the study of the Holy Writ meaning for Tsukim, for Tanakh, one third for the study of the oral law, and one third for thinking and reflecting so that he may understand the end of the thing from its beginning and deduct one matter from another and compare one matter to another and reason out by the hermeneutical rules in which the Torah is expounded to the end that he may know which are the principal rules and how to deduct them deduct therefrom that which is forbidden and that which is permitted and other like matters which he studied from the oral tradition this subject is of study is called marah now that's a bit of a complicated um description there but let's try to unpack what the rambam is getting at so the rambam when he says what is gemara what exactly is gemara besides the text right? The text of Gemara, both Gemara that we have, both the Talmud Bavli and the Talmud Yerushalmi, what exactly are they trying to accomplish? So he says, well, one thing they're trying to do is to make deductions, right? They have laws, they have principles, and then they derive laws in specific cases from the general rules that they have. One way they do that is through analogy, comparing one thing to another. But equally central for the Rambam is that they use the Yudimu Mido, shatara Nidrash, They use the rules that some of us say every day in Tzvilah, right before we start Sukkah De Zimrah, the different rules that we have of how to read the Torah, Homer, or an A4 Shiorai, a Hekesh, a comparison, um, and similar rules to derive laws from the written law. And the Rambam says that this process, let's look at the Hebrew just for a minute. To understand the rules of how the Torah is studied until you know the principles and how the laws, permitted and forbidden, emerge from it. Yan Zao nikra gemara. And this, I feel, is often neglected. Right? People think of gemara when they think primarily of the dialectics and the analysis and the mental gymnastics. But equally central for the Rambam, gemara for the Rambam includes understanding how the Torah gets from point A, from The psukim, from the word of God, all the way through the analysis, through the derivations, through the hermeneutical principles, all the way down to practical law. Meaning, for the Rambam, it's not just important to understand the bottom line, but part of what it means to understand halakha is to be able to trace that history, that intellectual history, all the way back from what God said, through the oral tradition, to get to the law as we have it. So our goal for the next few weeks is to try to understand that. Okay, I see I have two comments already, two in the chat. Let me look uh, I
0: can read it to you if you'd like.
1: Okay, uh. we got, Okay, I got one from here from Elisa. Uh, Is Rambam referring to original thinking when he says one third for thinking and reflecting or simply the study of what came before? Uh, I think it's both, right? Um, some of it is understanding what came before um, though we'll see this a bit more next week. Um, but the Rambam clearly thinks that part of it is understanding what came before, but part of it is understanding it yourself. Um, and one of the great mysteries, and this will be what we, takes up all of next next week, is why is it that we feel so bound by the early text, by the Mishnah, and more specifically the Bavli, such that we spend so much time understanding what they said, rather than understanding how we get to the Torah directly. We'll actually spend two weeks on this in different ways. One is understanding the uniqueness of the Bavli. And the second is, um, is it really true that all we do now is understand the Bavli? Or if you sit down and are compelled uh, to believe by your analysis that the Torah tells you to do something, which is not in contradiction with the Bavli, the Bavli is just silent on it. Can that be binding? Which While some people think that's crazy, as we'll see, many authorities don't think that's the case. They think you can actually create new halacha from the psukim as long as it doesn't go against the canons, Um, even nowadays. And that will be, I think, the third week. But I have to look at the the schedule as we do it. But that's definitely one of the the weeks that we have. So those two questions, how did it become that we're so obsessed with analyzing the Mishnah and the Bavli? Question one. And two is, can we still analyze things completely in novel ways? From the Torah itself, from Chumash, both those points we're going to take up. But I think the Ramam includes both understanding the past and um, uh, and coming up with new things. Uh, what does the second, third oral Torah include? That probably includes the Mishnah, which are the basic principles. Um, but we'll talk about that in in just a few minutes. But probably the Mishnah and that sort of that period of uh, of analysis. Okay. So with that in uh, in mind, let's continue. So we said we start with the Torah. But sometimes when we sometimes when we say Torah, we mean Chumash, we mean the tough in Tanakh, right? Just that first part, just the Brit Shmot, Vayikra, Bamidbar, Varham, the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, whatever you want to call it, we mean that. And sometimes we mean Tanakh. We mean all 24 books that have been included in the three sections of the canon of the written Torah. So which of those really begins our, uh, well, we know where it begins. Which of those are included in our journey into Halakha? So the Gemara makes it pretty clear here in uh, in number two. This is um, on the first daf of Baba Kama, the first page of Baba Kama, uh, in the context of deriving the sources for um. One of the four central categories of damaging, uh, of animal damages, of goring, of keren, um, which literally means horn, but it means goring. So the Gemara says, keren minala, from where do we know that goring is one of these central categories of damages in law? So the Gemara says, detan as the rabbis taught, ki yigach, ein yiga, nigicha the Torah says goring, and goring is done with a horn, Shinamar, and it quotes the Pasuk from Milochim in a quite dramatic story where um, the false prophet Sid- Sidkiah ben Kenana wants to illustrate that the king will be victorious, which he won't, um, and in order to illustrate that, he makes uh, horns to make a point that you will gore your enemy. Um, and furthermore it says in Dvarim it says that in one of the in one of Moshe's blessings in the Zodah Bracham so when referring to this re'aim metaphorically it talks about its horns and its ability to uh, to gore so the Gemara asks why do you need two verses to prove that you gore with a horn so he said the Gemara's problem is you might have thought well you can't learn law from at all from the words of the prophets from that middle section from the Tashma, you'd be right in that case so we need a pasuk from the Torah. We need a verse from the Torah itself. And the verse from the prophets from Zikia bin Kenana is only a gilui milta, meaning it reveals, it clarifies, but it's not the source of the law. The real source has to be the Torah, the Chumash, the five books of Chumash, but if sometimes you're unclear on what exactly the Chumish means, so then you can look at the words of the Nebim, you can wor- look at the words of the Talmud. So the Gemara here makes a central point, which is the source of everything is not Panach, but oh. Chumish, the five books of Moses. That's it. After that, anything after that is not primary Torah law. The words of the Nevi'im, obviously, they inspire us, they motivate us, but they are not independent sources of new law. They can disclose, they can reveal, they can clarify what the Torah means if we have a certain level of unclarity, but they cannot create law. Now that's not always true. There are cases where they do seem to create law, um, but it's never quite so clear. So there are certain cases in which Chazal, in which the rabbis see prophetic decrees, in which case um, the neviim and the Ketuvim are source of law as legislation, as post-Mosaic legislation, of legislation post um and maybe even Ketuvim, um, the exact parameters of this are, are questionable, but probably the most famous potential case of this is Megillah Esther, where Esther commands that her memory be inscribed and Purim become a holiday, which, according to many, therefore gives it a unique status where it's neither biblical nor purely rabbinic. It's divrei nevi'im; it's of the words of the prophets, because it finds its source in Torah. But primarily, law starts in Chumash, and everything after that, including the nevi'im and the ktuvim, including the other two sections of Tanakh, are Helpful in clarifying those primary principles, but they are not the source for biblical law. So why even cite the Malachim verse? Hey David. Good to hear from you, even from a, of a, of a text here. Um, so why even cite the Malachim verse? Um, so seemingly, it, it's clearer than the one in Torah. Meaning you could figure it out from the one in Torah, but it's even clearer. the navi so it helps it clarifies it bolsters um and it's helpful in that sense but in the end of the day it's not the source and since our goal is to understand the torah we can use everything including words of the prophets to clarify the torah but in the end of the day the torah the chumash is the source of law okay so now what do we do we have the torah and now well, where do we go from here? So as I said, the first mission on Perkei gives us a little, bit of a, a, a little bit of a history. Moshe Kibel Torah Moshe gets it from Sinai. Who um, Yoshua. And he gives it to Joshua. So Ganim. So Yoshua gives it to the sages. Who give it to the prophets. Who give it to the men of the great assembly. And they said three things. And then we go on. But it doesn't stop there. The question we are asking tonight has puzzled people living at every stage of the journey in halacha. Everyone wanted to know. Everyone wanted to know, how did we get to what we know as halacha? This isn't our question, living thousands of years after the process was set in motion. Everyone wanted to know this. So let's look at source three. Perhaps the most famous and most celebrated text which tries to trace this tradition was written by Roshreyra Gaon. So Roshreyra Gaon is at the end of the Gaonic period, which we will get to, but the Gaonic period is, let's say, one and a half periods after the, the Gemara. Um, Roshreyra Gaon, it's not exactly clear how long he lived, um, but something about a hundred years. He clearly lived a long life. The approximate dates are somewhere around 9.06 to 10.06. Exactly, dates are unclear, but he lived a long time. Um, And he gets the following question, which is really our question. And I bolded it here. Um, And for those of you who downloaded the sources, you'll see, um, I'll just run through it for a second. You'll see that I've included I, I made this on Svaria, where much of these texts are translated uh, so much of the the material here is translated um, later on in the sources, not all of this uh this letter um but um everything else is is translated, so you have that in the sources for future uh, for future reference and we'll, we'll we will draw on it as we uh, we go through um baruuch Ragon in his time was asked this question, M you asked Kate How did we get to the Mishnah? Did the men of the great assembly start it and write some of it? Until Rebbe got to the point where he sealed it. How did we get here? Now I'm not going to read this whole question, but you see that the people asking to him, we were really curious about this question and had some rudimentary knowledge so they said how did we get here right how did we get to where we are now now obviously there are a thousand years before us and we're going to have to fill in the gaps post russre but this is not a good new question everyone wants to know how did we get here so i've tried to bold key things um in this uh this letter and i want to trace the history of russre and as we go through i'll, I'll I will I'll make some comments about uh, some of the unclarity that that emerges from it, but let's follow fundamentally how Rav Shneuragon, living a thousand years ago, viewed the history that of of halacha. So he says tshuva v'ha'chahav lo ityadash mahon elashmotan shol nasiim Michel avot beitin bilvad mishum do halave machloket d'neihem oraita. He said, listen, there's a bit of blurriness. There's a, little, a bit of unclarity. We really don't know who the early rabbis were. But he has a fascinating claim. He says, you know why we don't know? You know why until the Mishnah, the only thing that the Mishnah lists is the Zugot, the head of the, 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 the two heads of the Beit Din, the Roshav, of Bezdin and the Nasi? Because there was no dispute. The way he imagines it is that basically the first few hundreds of the first few thousand years, I guess the first thousand years or plus of halachic history, there was no machloket. There were traditions about what the Torah meant that were passed down from Moshe to Yoshua to this Skenim, to the Anshin Knesset, Agdola, and no one argued, everyone, everything was clear. So when there's no fights, there's consensus, the individuals disappear. Who needs to know? the name of any particular member of the tradition, if everyone agrees on what the tradition is. And the analysis too, every detail of how to understand the Torah, everybody knew that too. So from the Mishnah to the Anshayi Knesset Avidola, which is several hundred years, right? The Some of them are prophets, so the late prophets um, Chagai, Zechariah, Malachi as Chazal imagined it Mordechai so you're talking about the time of the uh, between the first and the second Beit HaMikdash so about 586 BCE going on for a little bit after that, that's the Anshei Knesset Abdullah. and the ensuing generations there's no Machloka, everyone knew you just passed on the tradition. And therefore we don't really know who was in that period. And that brings you several generations in to the tradition. And then here in Hay, he says, "The as long as the Beta Magdash stood. So every rabbi would teach his students, he would explain the Torah the rationale for the Torah, he would explain how you derive law from the psukim. However, he would express it. And he would teach the students as he wanted. There was so much wisdom. They didn't have to work too hard at it. And if there was a dispute, so you'd bring it to the court, you'd come up to a conclusion, but basically things were easy as long as Jews had sovereignty. So he says all that early period, basically until the first century of the Common Era, when the Beit HaMikdash was destroyed, 66, 68, 70 CE, more or less, there was no machloket; people just taught their students, and it was all great. And then he lists all the names, and this is why I gave it to you, because just understand how much he cared. He gives you in each generation, we're not going to read all the names, but he gives you in each generation who was there. Yochan ben Zakkai at the time of Korban Habayit. And he keeps going. And after that, during that generation, around Korban so around the destruction of the Temple, you have Rabbi Yosi, a leader, Lazar ben Azariah, Rabbi Yochanan ben nuri Rabbi Yochanan ben Broka, Ruchanina ben Tradion, Rabbi Lazar ben Tradion. He does list name after name. And then he says, lehem, Rabbi Akiva. Right then there's, there's, then, there's, Rabbi Akiva, etc. Skipping ahead, Uvachola shanim halalu. And in all those years, all the laws as they were derived from the Torah were clear. But until the destruction, because once there's the destruction and persecution, so suddenly doubts arise and things get complicated and people forget. And the earlier generations, what they tried to do, even as questions started to arise, was just Still, in those earlier generations, they weren't trying to add anything. They were just trying really hard. All they were trying to do was figure out what they had said before them. And what they used to do, until they had resolved every doubt that came to them. And all of this was oral. All of this was oral. Now, it wasn't just parenthetically, it wasn't just Jews at this time who thought that the oral law, the notion of oral law was the supreme. You'll find this in Greek law and in Greek philosophy as well, the supremacy of oral law of things that are passed down from student to teacher with the living tradition rather than what they saw as the, the stultifying effects of, uh, of writing it down. And therefore he writes, None of this tradition gets written down until Rabbeinu Akadosh, until the Mishnah, not only was it not written down, but it wasn't uniform. It wasn't taught in a single uniform language. They understood the reasons. Everyone knew the basic same idea. They still weren't really arguing. There were certain machlogas, but they knew what was were. But there was no uniform text. There was no single text. They had traditions. They had rationales. They understood the Torah. And even though the substance, more or less, they agreed on, they taught however they wanted. Some people were brief, right? Some understood that brevity was valuable, like Rabbi Lazar ben Yaakov Kavunaki, where we say about him, everything he said was clean and um, and straight. Um, and there were other people who were less, were less. But then he says, But then differences crept in. And even though they were still basically talking about the same thing, and even though it basically came to the same conclusions, he sensed that the fountains of wisdom were drying up, people were being persecuted, their wisdom was diminishing, or their ability to Withhold the information was diminishing, so it came time to write things down. And this, for Roshrey is the beginning of the Mishnah. And why Rebbe? Because, as he says, until the time of Rebbe, there was no one who had power and wealth and wisdom and everything that you need to make a drastic change in the torah in the way the torah and the gemara actually says that when he wrote it down this is considered a violation of the law because really the oral law is supposed to stay oral but rebbe sees that things are starting to get complicated people are starting to forget it and as he says originally there was no dispute but part of forgetting was it wasn't just people started forgetting, but that led to disputes, and that required writing down and codification. So where are we now historically? I'm gonna run here to the end of the source sheet where I also put a While you're,
2: while you're a, running, can I just quickly ask sure,
1: about- Sure, go ahead.
2: So Rebbe wrote down the the Mishnah. He, he wrote the Mishnah, but he left out from the Gemara. We know he left out a lot of Breitot. So <laughs> yes, baraitut.
1: we're going to get to that in just a minute. Yes. Okay. So I'll just it. Keep... Yes. So but where are we? So here, if you look at this, very, I, I just found this online, but it's a very helpful little, uh, little chart. So we had started with the Tanakh, right? We'd moved. Um, right. So the Tanakh is written here between 14... 1400 BC to about 425 BC, then we talked about the, the Antikinesis Algola, we're talking about the time ending around the time uh, between the first and the second McDows going to the second MacDosh. so 586 to 516 BC, more or less, then you have this whole 500-600 year period until you get to the situation described um, by Rosheragom. Where you get to Rebbe, this is the second century, right? This is the Mishnah, um, and we'll talk about what's in the middle. But eventually, we'll get to the Rushalmi, which is about finished around 410 of the Common Era, and the and the Bavli, which is around 500. Okay, so that's now the years we have to uh, to fill it. Okay, so what else is going on in this period? So as much as Rebi is codifying it in what we know as the Mishnah. As I'm sorry, who talked before? That that the I, one downside of or of someone's talking out is under your name. So if you talk so, out, just tell me who you're, who talked. So who I asked just about asked
2: a, so I just oh that was somebody else. I was gonna ask okay. a question. This is okay, just, who, who was it who
1: asked about the Brightout, and then I'll I did, I did Malky. Malky, hi Malky. Okay. Hi. Okay, yeah. So we'll see that in just a second. Yes. What did so you I say? Neil, but you said you went go by something else. Nachum. I
2: I prefer Nachum, Nachum. thank you.
1: Okay, Nachum, yes.
2: So where does the Sanhedrin figure in?
1: Okay, good. So until the destruction of the Beit HaMiknash, part of the reason there isn't Machloket is not because people never argued, right? Good good you asked that, because now I can clarify it. I should have clarified it before, but I'll do it now. It's not that there wasn't any Machloket, because they were still analyzing the psukim and trying to understand what God wanted. They were disputing. The difference was, there was no lasting mahluk, because as long as you have a Supreme Court, they can adjudicate it, and when, whatever they say is final. So there may have been disputes within the court among the sages, but until the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash and the loss of authority that came with that, so if you had a question and it was unclear, you brought it to the Sanhedrin and they fought it out, but then they came to a decision, and that decision was then passed down. It could be challenged by a leader court, but that's about the extent of Machloket as if shei um, conceives of it. So
2: obviously you're talking destruction, second McDush, just to be clear.
1: Right, and that's why he thinks that there isn't major lasting Machloket from let's say 586 through 516, the period, of the the end of the Antichekines of In the next 600 years, he doesn't think there's lasting Machloket that's worth talking about, right? When disputes, become lasting disputes where there is no body in place to make a final decision, no Sanhedrin, no high court. So that's when you get to the Mishnah. Now, you don't just get to the Mishnah. Wait, really, right. really, one
2: quick question. On your the, yeah, short, yes. the chart that you just showed on page, the last one, page 13, Yeah. you have it separated into biblical Judaism and then Hellenistic Judaism, and then rabbinic, so I guess yeah, so I didn't make
1: this chart. I found it online okay, so um,
2: so at someone else's uh opinion of of the Judaism prior to okay right?
1: so so it is true, right that in this period, we're going to focus on sort of rabbinic Judaism, but it is true that there's a lot going on um right there's a lot of disputes at that time um all the way through Second Temple period of what Judaism is, right, so there are all the sectarian groups, right, okay. which we don't even know all their names. Uh, there are the Jews that become Hellenized and tried some of them leave sort of rabbinic Judaism, which is anachronistic, but for we'll call it rabbinic Judaism for now. Um, and those who uh, try to reconcile it, right? Like Philo somewhat tries to reconcile it. He's a little bit later, but, but fine. Um, but yeah, meaning there's a lot going on in this period that's not exactly um, rabbinic Judaism. Rabbinic Judaism in that sense is anachronistic because Rabbinic Judaism is the tradition of the Pharisees, right, which emerges, right, with the Mishnah and the Gemara and the like, and they're still sectarian groups later. So there's a lot going on. But our halacha follows this basic uh, trajectory. Um, so we're going to try to at least get the history down of that. Obviously, right, to understanding sort of the ancient world and all the other Judaisms that emerged. Um, the Jewish Judaism that became Christianity, Right, all that's going on there, right? In those hundreds of years, there's a lot going on, um, but that doesn't have that much influence in halacha, at least not directly, in terms of how it's uh, conceived.
2: Is there no Sanhedrin after the destruction of the Second there Temple? There are,
1: so there are, um, sort of, not with the same authority, because the th- authority has to come from sitting in the um, in the Beit Hamikdash. Um, But there are acting high courts, essentially, in Yavne, right, in the immediate period following the destruction of the Beit HaGash, which eventually will go up to the, right, will move to different places in Sipari and different places in Galil. So there are acting Sanhedrins that try to consolidate, and people like Roman Gamliel um, really do try to consolidate power, um, but it weakens. It gets consistently weaker, which is part of what leads to the disputes and, and fighting that leads to Rebbe's need for the Mishnah is that the authority slowly becomes less centralized and less, right? There's an attempt to centralize it, right? That's Urban Gamliel's whole goal is to maintain a central authority post-destruction. But it doesn't work so well um, because people start fighting. For a while it works, but then in the next 100, 200 years, that's when things get much more complicated, and that's when Rebbe starts writing down the Mishnah. The breaking point for the in the in Chazal's mind is Hillel and Shammai, and they're students where it's not just one dispute here or there, it becomes different rabbinic cultures. What year? So, right, so this is you this is talking second century, right? So now we're in right now, you're talking the second, they're students, so exactly where to draw the, the line, right? But around the second century, which is right around when Rebbe is going to be writing the Mishnah, though, that's at the end of the period now. As Maliki correctly noted before, this is not the only thing that's going on. It's not only the Mishnah. Um, there's also the things that Rebbe decided didn't get into the Mishnah, but were other traditions, and that's what is known as Tosefta, or the Breitot, as you have here, Baha'i Breitot, the Tosefta. But there's also Midrashe Halacha. Um, there's also Midrashe Halacha. So at the same time period, there are Tana'idic texts that um, are just collections of analyzing tsukim and deriving law. So you have Sifra, which is on Vayikra, which is on um, the Karbanot in Vayikra. There's the Sifrei, which is on Bamidbar and Varin. There's several Mechiltot, which are on Shemot. Um, And these are all happening this period. So it's not just Rebbe who's writing, but you have um, Rav- Ravchia who's writing down the Breitot and the Tosef-tot. Um and you have Rabbi Shmael and Rabbi Akiva, who are writing down Midrashe Halakha. Um, and there are, it's not entirely clear. Breitot are understood in two ways. Uh, either they are simply other tannaitic traditions that didn't make it in the Mishnah, or they're actually um, ancillary tannaitic traditions that, um, that are trying to understand the primary Tanitic traditions in the, uh, in the Mishnah. Um, now, he asks, well, if they're important, so why did Rebbi write them, but not Rebbe? Right? If these are Tanitic traditions, why do they make it into the outside books of the Raita and not the Mishnah? Which is his question here in Lamedet. but Lamo, Kadva Rebbi, why didn't Rebbe write it? Um, so he fell, and he, so he according to him, Rebbe wrote down He wrote down the things that were clear, that were the most expounded, um but not everything, not every detail um, that was left to Rupriya in the uh, in the Mishnah. Um, and at the same time, as I mentioned, there's the Safrai, safra Darshid in him how do laws come out of the sokin So all these central texts are around there, this in, in sec right, year 200 all around then, all these are being developed. The Mishnah, which is Rebbe, the B'chia, the Bright and these collections of Major understanding the law, Sifra, Sifrei, um etc. That Zier. goes on for about two centuries, right? And the traditions are expounded and argued on and In uh, the beginning of the fifth century, about 410. So the Amoraim, which is the next period, collect the traditions in Eretz Israel, in Israel, and their traditions are codified into Talmud Yerushalm. A hundred years later or so, the traditions of Bavil, which are running in parallel but slightly later, get codified into the Bavli. Um, And as he I won't read it inside, but as he describes here, there continued to be disputes and clarifications and expounding and expansions and applications of the law and usage of all the drashot and the analysis of all these tanitic texts and further analysis and application and exposition from the psukim led to these two Talmuds, the the Yerushalmi in the 5th century and the Bavli <clears throat> in the uh in the sixth uh century. Is, yeah. Um Hi, Rabbi, right. Rabbi, is he hearing? Yes, uh it's Ellie Nyman. Uh in terms yeah. of halakha and history, how does Hanukkah and various other uh fit in, like v- various rabbinic decrees like halal? Um, so right, these are a little bit unclear, right? Meaning Hanukkah um Obviously has its authority in its historical moment, which is much earlier. Um, but right, but Chazal imagine is rabbinic, right? Because it's uh, right, it's too late. It's in the it's right, it's in the period of the second Beit Hamikdash, um, at which point we don't view biblical laws coming into place. But as I said, right, there is that unclarity whether things in that period are merely rabbinic or some sort of super rabbinic category of דברי נביאים. Um, there are these certain things that are emerging in those earlier periods, which seem to have a certain unique standing, um, but they're still not conceptualized as, as biblical because they're too late, right? They're just, they're just not in the, in the biblical period. Um, and then obviously there are things in the, in the classic rabbinic period, which are, right, which are purely, purely rabbinic, have no sort of quasi earlier status. Um. Okay, so as he says, but analysis going going, every generation. And after the two Talmuds, and next week we'll talk about the exact differences and why the Bavli became as important as it is. He says, each generation added halacha and analyzed. Um and continued to analyze. And after the close of the Talmud, there's this period he calls <laughs> He said the end of the Gemara is the end of new law, the end of new rabbinic law, sort of. But then there's this period called the Savura'i, the Savura'im, which are sometime after the Talmud and before the Gaon. Now, historians are very unclear on what this act what actually happened then. Um, because uh, the way Rav, Sa- uh, Rav Sheragon imagines it was the Gemara was closed and then the Gonim just started at some point. So he fills in the gap and says there were several hundred years where basically the to- the Gemara or the Sakim of the Gemara were being edited and put together and that's the Saburaic period. Um, historians argue whether there actually was a Saburaic period in that sense um, or really the line between the end of the Gemara, the dynamic end of the Gemara and the Gaonim is a little bit blurrier. And whether the Gaonim themselves, who, as we'll see in a moment, were the heirs to uh, the yeshivot in Babel, they lived in Babel, and they were actually the Russian yeshiva of Sur and Pompadita, of the main yeshivot in the time of the Gemara, whether they thought they were still creating law. So it's not clear whether there's actually a period of the Saburaim or this, there's this sort of transition from the Sabura'im to the Gaonim. And then we move, in the last centuries of the, of the first millennium, to the Gaonim. Um, and what's fascinating in Rav Shre-Ragon is that Rav Shre-Ragon doesn't stop his history with the Gemara, or even the Savurahim. He goes on and gives you the year of birth and death of every one of the Gaonim before him. And you would see here, Shachiv Rav, Shmuel, right? He goes to Rav and Shmuel, but then After the death of the Savurayan, he goes through his predecessors because he saw himself as a live part of this tradition going from the Mishnah all the way uh, to him. And the Rambam, in in his introduction to Mishnah Torah, does something similar to to, um, Rishrei Rigon. And traces this history he also thinks that there was no machloket because um before Rebbe and eventually because of persecution <clears throat> so that led to the writing down the torah but what i wanted to show you here in six is that the rambam it's so important for him to show you this history that he traces what he sees as the 40 steps from moshe to him right and he goes backwards right he goes backwards Right. If you start backwards, it's Moshe. We'll go backwards from men. Moshe, Yeshua, Pinchas, Eli, Shmuel, David, Achia, Eliyahu, Elisha, Yohadas, Harya, Hoshea, Amos, Ishaya, Micha, Yoel, Nachom, Habakkuk, Tzvanya, Yirmiah, Baruch, Benaria, right. Ezra, Shimon atsadik, Antignos, the two Yosefs, Yeshua, Benita, Yehuda, Shimon, Shmai, Natalion, Hillel and Shabbai, Shimon, Ben Gamliel, Raben Gamliel. Rabbi Shimon, his father, Rabbi his father, Rabbi Shimon, his, his father, okay, etc. cetera. Rabbi, Shmuel, Rebbi, Yom Yochanan, Rabuna, Rabba, Rabba, Rabashi, right? He traces these 40 generations because for him, it's important that you see from beginning to end what this tradition is. And the Rama makes it clear that what is part of this tradition, it's not even just what you think law is. And he says here, what counts, what is this Rabbinic tradition that I've now traced for you for thousands of years, what is it? It's Haminhagot, Hatakanot, Darvador. It includes not just the decrees, but every custom that became formalized in every generation. <clears throat> All of that for the Rambam is incorporated in the generic mitzvah in the Torah, Lotasur. Do not turn from the words of the rabbis. And he says, right, nowadays, we don't have any central authority. So now, and this will become important later in our classes. Nowadays, there isn't a centralized authority. And therefore, you can't challenge people's customs. But for him, that is a problem. Because through the bavli, there was still an attempt to have unified practice, and that's why we tried to hash out all the machlokot in uh, in the bavli. Um, But we don't have that anymore. And then he and and therefore he tells you at the end, um, in this age, with aff- aff- afflictions mightily intensified, the pressure of the hour weighed heavily upon everybody when the wisdom of our wise did perish. And all the etc. Therefore, have I, Moses, son of Maimon of Spain, girded up my loins and supporting myself upon the rock, blessed be he made a comprehensive study of all books and minded myself, etc. He said, because of the problem in history that we are now, the things are unclear. I wrote my book. So the Rambam continues the tradition we saw of placing himself in this tradition. So let's try to sort of orient ourselves. So, where, where are we? So what you get, the primary law is the Torah, the Chumash. Navi and K'tuvim here and there have certain decrees that have sort of superpower, but for the most part, even Navi, Navi, and K'tuvim are explaining what there is in Chumash. Then you have this sixth centuries, essentially from the destruction of the Bain Hamikdash, the time of the Anchei Knesset Abdullah, through the um. The destruction of the second Beta Magdash, where there are certain machlokot, there are certain disputes, but because there is a high court, disputes are resolved, and the norm is consensus. But then after the destruction of the Beda Magdash, all the attempts to keep consensus begin to fail, disputes start, and people start to forget the teachings. So the Tanaitic material is collected in the Mishnah, but all in the, the second century, by also the Braito, the Tosefto and the Midyushchei Halacha. But that's not enough, because there continue to be disputes and attempts to apply the law in new ways, which manifest themselves in the Palestinian Talmud, the Yerushalmi, the, the Amoraim, ending in 410, and then about 100 years later, the Bafri. And then there's this amorphous pe- period of the Saburaim, where between the Savorayim and the Gemara, where they're editing the, the Gemara, then leading to this period of the Gaonim, who are the heirs to the, um, to the yeshivot of the Gemara, but they see themselves as post-Talmud and they're either just understanding the earlier law, though there does seem to be some independence there where they think they're still creating law. Um, that continues till about the year 1000. And as you see in Usheregon, writing in about the year 1000, in the Rambam writing 200 years later, Everyone then views themselves as continuations of this tradition. Now, at some point, as we'll see next week, they view the bavli as the final word, and everything post-bavli is just interpretation. And next week's question is, why is that the case? But despite the fact that everyone sees the bavli as the final word, they still see it critical to place themselves generation after generation in the tradition, because as we started with the Rambam, they need to see how you got from point A to point Z, no matter how many letters there are in between, which for them is not just 26, right? And they tell you every single generation because it's important for them to understand how this developed through the disputes, even if disputes are not ideal, to their own period. And the Rambam tells you that that's his goal too, that the Gemara tried to take Machlokot, unified Kalal Yisrael, it didn't really work. The Gaonim fought for several hundred years, Now everyone has different traditions, I'm gonna try to codify it in the 12th century. It doesn't really work. He's pushed back on it and says, no, at this point we can't codify. So for 500 years, you have the period of the Rishonim, more or less, from the year 1000 to the year about 1500. And then in the mid 16th century, and we'll talk about this much later, Rabbi Yosef Karo, when he writes the Beit Yosef and then the Shulchan Aruch, does the exact same thing. He says, Things have gotten out of hand. Things aren't clear for the last 500 years. I don't know what to do here. I'm gonna write a compendium so that we can now bridge the last 500 years of tradition and codify them and bring us up to date now. And what you see is that in each generation, the rabbis of that generation see themselves as living links in this tradition, but are constantly trying to place themselves and figure out how do we deal with the added hundreds of years of complexity recognizing that ideally at some level we used to have a unified system, but now we don't, and maybe we celebrate it, maybe we bemoan it, but we have to deal with it, and there's an attempt in each generation to place uh, place, um, the Posaic places himself to understand how we got there. And that's really our journey, is to try to figure this out. So we've mostly gone through the Go'onim, which are this political – um, heirs and spiritual heirs to the Gemara. But then there were these 500 years of early authorities that become the in that basically ends with the writing of Shulchan Aruch in the 16th century where that era is codified. And then the next 500 years are more or less referred to as the Ahronim. We'll talk about in later weeks why we get to the seeming, these seeming arbitrary uh, divisions. But with that, we uh, conclude in our, our basically snapshot tour of how we got to, um, at least through the Gemara, to the Gaonim, and basically to the period where people start to collect uh, and codify, we will come back in greater detail, as I said, next week, to the question of why the Bavli? Why is it that the Bavli seems to be this breaking point, where post-Bavli, with Shreira Gon everyone is just figuring out, not how do we create new law, but how do we understand the Bavli? And what is our relationship to it? Why is that true? Um, And again, in later weeks, we'll also figure out is it true? Or do we still derive new law from the Pisokim? And we will also more in depth zero into the period of Shulchan Aruch, which seems to be the next great printing moment um, in the 16th century when the printing press allowed the explosion of codification, um, which was then disseminated widely. We'll have to examine that period. Um, but today, hopefully at least we got a bird's eye view of that first sort of thousand several thousand years until we got uh, to that point. Um, and in the coming weeks we'll we'll zero in on some of the the uh, methodological and historical issues as we continue uh, in this this tour of history. I see I have a few questions. So, um, so
2: theologically okay. speaking, there's a monolithic solidity of opinion. Because when you refer to that chart for Torah, Okay, good. So you're referring so, to the Peh I mean, we theologically believe Torah Shabal Peh was given to. So obviously the beginnings of that oral tradition are held in some uniformity down through the time of
1: Sanhedrin. Right. So um, so so first of all, right, that's that's an important machloket where the Rambam and Shre-Ragon seemingly think that a monolithic tradition is really the ideal. Um, Not everyone agrees to that. Um, Many believe that that's not the ideal um, and actually celebrate the disputes. Um, But but, um, mostly that's within understanding this history, right? I mean, that's a perspective question on the history um, that preceded it. Um, But the Rambam and the Roshirugam would tell you, yes, a monolithic tradition would be ideal, um, but we can't get it, and that is shared by many, Um, but others would would not say that. So people like Yamcha Shlomo, Shlomo Luria, as we'll see, did not believe that at all. He thought that the multiplicity of traditions is, in fact, uh, intrinsic and inherent to the system, um, rather than a, uh, a feature, rather than a bug. Um... Now, um, so David notes that, yes, many of the Braitha do contradict elements of the Mishnah. Um, now, in some cases, the Amaraim and the, and the Sabaraim or the Stam, uh, which we didn't really talk about, but the um, try to resolve contradictions between the Mishnah and the Braitha. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they just rule like one over the other. Um, and a lot of what the Gemara is trying to do is resolve the tensions in Tanitic traditions. Uh, that is definitely true. Um, now, as to the question of historicity here. So, as I alluded to a little bit when we talked about the Savaraim, um, it's not clear that Ursharagon or the Rambam have an exact grasp of history exactly as it was. Um, that's true. And if you look at historians, they'll challenge it. And as I mentioned earlier, it's not clear whether there really was a Sabaraic period so much rather as a slow transition from the Gemara to the Gonim, where during the Gonic period, there were people who believed they were bound to the Babli and people thought they were still doing independent law. Um, It's true. And um, some of this history may not be exactly accurate, um, but this is the tradition. This is how the tradition viewed itself. And even if at the margins, there may be things that are not exactly true um, or might be oversimplified, it's important to understand the self-concept of the people in the in the tradition. Um and yeah, the Rambam has a little bit of differences, and Rosh Ragon has little differences, um, and they may not be identical. Um, but the general notion that during the Mishnaic period, they were trying to codify the um the traditions that have been passed down. And then disputes um exploded as they were forgetting things and implementing it in new ways, which led to the two Talmuds. Um, That is more or less true. Now, yes, as David correctly notes, academia doesn't accept all these reconstructions um, in many ways. right? Some of it is it's oversimplified, um, and that's true. Um, And it may be that it's more complicated than this. Um, in many ways, right? It may be that machloket was inherent to the system earlier, right? That dispute was earlier, and this history, obviously, as we as we already mentioned before um, briefly, when I, in, in Malki's question, it o- it overlooks the influence of sectarian traditions that were living at the same time. Which, if you read Rishayragar and the Rambam, you wouldn't know that it had any influence in rabbinic Judaism, but obviously it did. A lot of rabbinic Judaism was in was in conversation um, or opposition to these traditions, and this. History doesn't um, describe it. The midot. So there is a machloket amongst the academics. Do we accept the rabbinic sort of self conception that the midot are passed down from Sinai, or are they things that emerge later? And if they emerge, when exactly do they emerge? And yes, um, it's true that to pin down the exact um, history rather than just the simple version. As presented in in uh and the Rambam is much more complicated. And and yes, I the exact differences between the different traditions of Rabbi Kiva and Rabbi Shmael, um when exactly they emerged and what are the differences. Um that's also complicated. And yes, my goal today was not to necessarily give you exactly the right. Look, we could spend Weeks, and we're already a little bit over time. We could spend weeks um, going through every line of Shergon, sure, and figuring out what's right historically, what's not. But the self-conception that the way halacha emerges is trying to understand how the Torah came from the Torah, was analyzed through the midot, whenever exactly they were developed, through the Tanetic period, how we tried to collect and create consensus, or at least organize machlokot and figure out how to move on from that. And that that process continued in the time of the Bavli, the Yerushalman and the Bavli. And then through the Gonic period, it was codified in the and codified again in the 16th century in Aruch. And that each member of the tradition is find, trying to find their place. Understanding that self-conception is important to understand the way Postkin think um, and the way they imagine themselves as part of the process. So I'm going to, we'll officially call it there. I, I will stay on for as long as people want for questions. Um, I I finished at an hour, and I've only been fielding questions. I don't feel so bad uh, with that. But I will officially end it now and stay on for questions as long as you want. Yes, this is not the right. We could talk forever about the exact historicity of all this. What I wanted to do was paint the the conception of those people who are bearers of the tradition to understand what they think they're doing um, and how they think they're channeling this tradition. Um, And in that sense of and the Rambam are classic presentations. Even if, as we have alluded to and now more uh, you know said more explicitly, the exact historicity is uh, is often called into into question. Okay, I'm going to stop there, but I, like I said, I'll st- stay around for questions as long as people want. Um, and again, next week will be the the question of how we got to the Babri, uh as the text from which we derive uh, halakha, that is going to be our goal uh, for next week. Uh, same time, same place or virtual space or whatever you call it. Um, okay, well, thank you for coming and learning it. Uh, it's been fun and uh, yeah, I, like I said, I'm, I'm around for as long as people have, uh, have questions, so. I
2: have a question. It's yeah. Malcolm again, sorry to be so persistent. Um, firstly, excellent presentation and thank you. Um, I guess when it comes down to it, trying to understand what's binding and what's not binding, in terms of you know authority. So, you know, what roadmap does that become for us today? Um, like by the time of Shulchan Aruch, you also have a Rama. Um, but the so this is
1: so so right to give a I I I'm not even sure how much of the with uh, the actual I know the description was is is on the course, but are the actual breakup of the weeks is that. Included on the on the description. I'm not even sure. But <laughs>
2: to,
1: to, so so my mandate for this class was to try to focus on process insofar as we can understand it through history. Um, mm-hmm. so so the to give you a sort of a, a view of what's coming. So next week will be the question of why the bavli is binding, um, to the extent that it we assume it is, but why why do we assume that it is? Both Gemara in general and bavli in specific. Um, what, how does that happen? Um, in, uh, I think this is week four, but I'm, I have to look at the exact way we ordered this. Um, we're going to talk about um, jumping ahead to the 16th century, which is what happened during that period of codification? Why is it that specifically in the 16th century, these codes emerge? And what exactly do the codifiers think they're doing? Do they think they're writing law for everybody? Do they think they're writing law only for their communities, local or broad? Um, we'll see that even what the Rama is doing, Rambam is doing, is very unclear. And there's a fascinating machloket, a fascinating dispute that emerges um, immediately after the Rama is published between one of the his contemporaries. And not the Ramah, but the printers, where the, um, the, a rabbi takes on the printers and says, you are misrepresenting um, what the Ramah is even trying to do, to, to do. In, in, in favor of printing, uh, of, sorry, in, in favor of sales, you're pretending that the Ramah is doing something that he's not to make it a bestseller internationally rather than a local bestseller. Um, and the question of what happens in the 16th century Is important, Um, and it's going to be the beginning of our discussion of well, what happens? Whatever they thought they were doing, which was sort of the beginning of because of the expulsion, the beginning of the breakdown of local communities. What does that teach us about the 20th and 21st century when globalization hits the Jewish community even more? And what does that even do to the earlier uh, structures that was set up by the codifiers? Um, in the time of the Shulchan so, so this is our goal. So week four, I think we devoted two weeks to this question uh, out of the six, which is what is going on during the codifying period? How did globalization, which was enabled through the expulsion and through printing, how did that affect it? And what does that teach us about the greater globalization of the 20 and 21st century? Um, that's two weeks of the course, but I don't remember if it's week four and five or five and six. Um, but that is our goal, right? Those are those are on our agenda. So it's yeah, it's understanding the Bavli. Whether we still derive things from Sukkim, what's going on in the period of the codifiers? How do we deal with globalization in the 20th and 21st century? I have to look at exactly how we divided it, but all that is on the agenda for the next uh, the next five weeks. Um, so it's an excellent question, Nachum, and that is exactly where we that's that's where we're going with this. But it will be a it'll be a journey. <laughs> It'll be Fantastic. a journey to, uh, to get there, which we, we we have to take for the uh, the uh, the next few weeks, and hopefully by the end, I can't promise you clarity. I can promise you we will understand what we don't understand. Um, <laughs> at least that's my goal by the by the end of it, because a lot remains um, mysterious. But hopefully, we'll understand why it remains mysterious um, really? when we when we get there. Um, but that's our goal. But but you will have to hold on tight because that'll be in like three weeks from now. Um, and we got we got a ways to go before we get there. Next week is the right. We're focusing on the fourth and fifth centuries. So uh, you know, and the Bavli. So you know, we got time.
0: Um,
1: okay. Well, thank you, everyone, especially people who ask questions. Um, I'm still sticking around, um, but uh, but I really do appreciate questions and people pushing me. Um, oh, I see that. I see there's more 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 comments here. Oh, that's okay. Yeah, excellent. Yes, yeah, huge topic. Yes, it is a huge topic. This is our framework. Yes, exactly. Um, I'm glad that it got across this as a framework um, and not exhaustive of all the history. That's my goal for this week. Um, hopefully, the pictures are a little bit helpful. If you, if you get lost, you can always go back to the pictures, at least more or less orient yourself, um, which is why I included them. Um, the sources in future weeks are shorter because, you know, I'm going to focus much more in detail on, on it. And, you know, rather than try to get a snapshot of thousands of years, we're going to take smaller periods. Um, so hopefully that works. Um, okay. Well, thank you for, for it.
0: Um, okay. So thank you again, Rabbi Zirin. And thank you to everyone who joined us today on zoom on Drisha live and on Facebook, we continue our spring program tomorrow, Tuesday at 8. PM with the first class in a series on the laws of Nida with Rabbanit Lea Serna and Rabbanitar Wolkenfeld. And on Wednesday this week, we continue with the first class in the series of profiles in PSAC which will be hosted by Dr. Devorah Stainment, and will highlight a different guest speaker at each class. In addition, we have many more classes happening right now. You can find out more information as well as the registration links on our website at www.drisha.org classes, or you can watch live at www.drisha.org slash live. Thank you again for this opportunity to learn with you, at Rabbi Ziering, and thanks again to everyone who attended. I will see you uh, next Monday at 1 p.m. for the continuation of this class, and we hope to see you at other classes here at Dresha.
1: Okay, thank you Bye so everyone. much, everyone. It's been fun. Um, like I said, feel free thank to you. follow up with me, and I look forward to seeing you next week.
0: Wonderful. Bye-bye, everyone. Okay.